president and CEO of the Federal Reserve of the Bank of St. Louis, James Bullard. President and CEO of the Federal Reserve Bank of Philadelphia, Pat Harker. And yet we're hundreds of basis points away from our target. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside my co-host, Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle market trends each and every week on SiriusXM's Wharton Business Radio Channel 111. Enjoy this week's show. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Director of Research at Wisdom Tree, an ETF sponsor. My co-host is Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for the Long Run and the Future for Investors. You should note I'm registered representative of Foresight Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a senior advisor to Wisdom Tree. Discussion today is not tied to the offer of selling investment products. The views of our guests are their own and not those of Wisdom Tree's affiliates. We have a very special show today. We have Bill Stone, uh, CIO of PNC Investments downtown from Philadelphia in the studio with us. Bill, welcome back. Great to have you here in the studio. Thanks. Great to be back. Uh, we have Professor Siegel is going to join us for some market commentary. Um, we're going to talk with Jesper Cole on the second half of the program about Japan, which was in the news this week from the Bank of Japan, uh, just keeping its policy on hold. We've had a week of central bank activity with the ECB talking about their policies. And next week, we have the Fed. Uh, Professor, maybe we could get some commentary from you just on the markets here. The U.S., uh, we keep hanging in there. The S&P is hanging mm-hmm. in near its highs. Yeah, I mean, they get these huge sell-offs, and everyone said, oh, yeah, it's a correction. And then a few hours later, it, goes, <laughs> it, 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 it comes back. Um, yeah, I mean, we got we got a lot of going on. I, 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 first of all, do want to repeat, and I did say this last week in commentary, that the, the health care collapse, uh, which certainly isn't good for the Trump administration, I do not think diminishes the probability of tax reform, and particularly corporate tax reform. Personal tax reform is going to be more difficult, but corporate tax reform and lowering that rate um, and repatriating those dollars, which are now nearly $2 trillion abroad, um, uh, is, 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 is really important. So I still think that that's very much on the table. Uh, some people even think it's more on the table now than it was before. So I don't, I don't, uh, I don't certainly share that uh, pessimism. Uh, the big news. I mean, uh, yields are going back down. Um, we have the ten-year to two twenty-two now. Um, uh, yeah, FOMC meets tomorrow uh, for one of its uh, interim meetings between the quarter. Uh, Wednesday it'll report now. Uh, certainly that's not going to be a rate change, but uh, they may announce the beginning of um, the reduction of the balance sheet or what's sometimes called the normalization of monetary policy, although that, I think that's somewhat of a misnomer. Uh, and uh, we may get that as early as September. So there is certain things to, to look at. And, of course, the Fed is still having trouble meeting its inflation objective. That has not changed since uh, Yellen uh, has uh, testified. I think the the big news is the collapse of the dollar. Wow. Uh, down again today, um, uh, it has retraced all its uh, gain that it did since the uh, Trump administration, uh, uh, you know, uh, one in November plus more. I, I was shocked to see the Mexican peso has regained everything it lost since the, the Trump uh, victory. Um but the, you know the dollar going lower is a, as we've talked about many times the net positive for stocks uh, in many many ways. I mean one of the most important ways, of course, is the translation of earnings into dollars from the foreign currencies definitely increases. But uh, those that practice international allocations will see their uh, dollar holdings going down, and uh, if they have a target, that will actually cause them to increase their proportion of U.S. stocks. So we might see some money flowing in from abroad as uh, as the dollar cheapens. So that's certainly not a negative uh, for uh, stocks. Uh, oil really, I mean, you know, it has bounced back, but honestly, it's almost all a dollar effect. Um, we have West Texas at uh, 50, 45.78, and, and the word on the street is that whenever the futures get to 50 and above, the, the frackers sell those futures aggressively uh, to lock in a, a sure profit, and that's one reason why it can't break above uh, uh, that particular uh, limit. Um, I, I, would, I would like to end, um, uh, you know, we heard the news about John McCain um, and, uh, you know, very serious cancer that the 
where the survival rate is very, very low and seems to be quite advanced. Um, and I worked personally with John uh, on his 2000 uh, campaign and got to know him very, very well. I broke with him because I did not agree with his uh, Iraq stand, and I did not work on his 2008 campaign, but still a remarkable man. And, um, you know, um, I, I mean, I hope he pulls through that realistically we're going to lose a, an independent uh, voice. I think it'll stay Republican because it's a state of Arizona, won't shift that balance. But uh, the independence of his views are, I think, very, very important now. So I just did want to put that uh, in since that development, um, you know, came apparent on, on, on Wednesday. Yeah, thanks for that. Um, it's interesting on the Fed that you talked about, you know, thinking about next week potentially announcing the, the balance sheet reduction, p- potential policies. And, you know, we've heard a lot of questions on what's the impact going to be on the equities, what's going to be on bonds. And you'd say, well, everybody's expecting them to start doing this. It should be, quote unquote, priced in. But how do you get a sense of what the, yeah, how I mean, are you thinking you know, through so the bonds and the equities? The market has been acting really like a big deal. Um, but, you know, this is bonds sold by the Fed. I, you know, we, we, we have an ongoing deficit from our federal government about $500 billion or so, that has, those are bonds that have to be sold. Now, the Fed is not going to sell anyone near that, but if it's $100 billion, that does add 20% to the supply of bonds that has to be absorbed by the outside world. So, I mean, you know, uh, it, it, you know everything else equal uh, a greater supply from the Fed would tend to pressure yields. We just don't know how much. I don't think it's a big item. Um, I think, you know, other factors such as growth, inflation, and, and other things are much more important. But, uh, uh, you know, it is one factor adding to the supply of debt that has to be absorbed either domestically by um, U.S. or by, you know, foreign uh, foreign buyers. So, uh, but so far, I mean, you know, you know with, the, with the long bond at uh, – uh, 2.2, 2. I mean, there seems to be no fear that that's going to have a significant uh, uh, impact on the market. Bill, any any reflections on there? Any comments you want to jump in with the professor? Yeah, I mean, I think in terms of the the Fed, you know, certainly, you know, we all think about it, and, and you have to say, well, we haven't had to reduce or wanted to reduce the Fed's balance sheet to this kind of significance since after World War II. It's obviously a much different time frame. But I'm, I guess I have to say I'm in agreement that our thought is, well, yeah, it's a, on the margin going to send yields a bit or should should move yields a bit higher. But I guess in one sense, it, it doesn't keep us up at night too much um, because of what he talked about. I mean, it's just rates are so low. And even if you compare and say, well, German yields are at 50 basis points, you know, at half a percent, it's still pretty attractive. It's hard to imagine that uh, in terms of some demand won't come in and be interested if our yields go up a bit. Yeah, especially with the lower dollar now, uh, you know, I think that makes it more attractive. Let me say, I, you know, with, with the euro, um, let me look at the quote right now, 116.7. I, I don't think Draghi is uh, real happy with this. I mean, he's a little concerned that this strong euro. Don't forget, I mean, the whole idea of QE was to bring the euro down to stimulate trade. It did to a great extent. And then they, uh, and of course, you know, I think they were going to turn anyways, but I think that certainly helped. So, but 116.7 begins to, at the margin, hurt that. So Draghi, I think, is going to be um, pretty uh, dovish. Because he doesn't really want to talk the euro up any more uh, than it is, and probably he's he's a little bit uncomfortable with its level now. But that also makes the U.S. Treasuries more attractive now because I think there's less price risk in there in terms of an overvalued dollar. Um, and of course, with uh, as you just mentioned, the yield, uh, you know, is, is, is about 170 basis points different in in the yield with a lower dollar. I think it will find foreign buyers for the uh, bonds that the Fed is uh, going to sell. You know, Professor, we didn't have a lot of time at the end of last week's show. We were ba- wrapping up from uh, Joel Moker and Robert Gordon on the productivity d- discussion we had. Any, um, do you want to weigh in on any, you know, your takeaways from that conversation or anything that yeah, you... Yeah, I mean, there's you... so many interesting issues. And, um, uh, uh, you know, one, one thing that, that, that Joel mentioned um, that... That of course I knew, but it, it, it emphasized that you know GDP is not the beginning and the end of welfare. And it, in fact, one of the things we learned as economists that you know at the margin, 
yeah, you know, you value your leisure as much as the wage. And a lot of people are, you know, we have a less participation part, part, uh, thing now. And, 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 and Robert Gordon, a pessimist on productivity, talks about that participation rate and everything. But people are taking leisure, and leisure is valued. So the, the welfare implications um, are much less on a drop of the participation rate, which does lower GDP, than uh, certainly the look at productivity um by itself i mean i i think i think there were a lot of fascinating issues that were uh that were brought up and um uh you know i i i think i, th- I think we're going to have a later program bringing yeah. some of uh some of those uh issues back together no absolutely any uh any closing thoughts or bill any questions for the professor yeah, i mean i you know we're, we're at the beginning in the earnings season they're coming in pretty good i don't think quite as stellar as the first quarter in terms of uh, raising the guidance that we saw for the first time in several years that we did see the first quarter, but certainly uh, they haven't, they're not bad. Um, and um, uh, we see a little bit of uh, diminution in, in some of the longer-term estimates that we always do, but uh, at, at this point um, it looks good. And, and by the way, the early estimates for third quarter are still GDP of around three um, which, if it materializes, would be one of the uh, stronger quarters that we've had in quite a while. Well, very good. Have a uh, have a good weekend here, Professor. Thank you very much. Bye. Uh, so, Bill, um, maybe we could talk a little bit about. Uh, so, you're as the uh, the chief investment strategist, global chief investment strategist for PNC Asset Management here in the Philadelphia area. Um, maybe sort of recap for us, you you know, as we think about the major issues of the day, we're, we're hearing a lot of politics discussion, a lot of monetary policy. How are you, you know, reflecting on your asset allocation strategy? How do you think about forming it? How much are these different factors coming into, into your mind? Yeah, so I think some of the things Dr. Siegel kicked off with is, you know, we saw yields rise kind of after end of June with, I'll argue, a little bit more hawkish, or at least the market took it as more hawkish statements from particularly the Fed and the ECB. Um, As he talked about, that seems to have not reversed, but certainly come back in a little bit with yields also coming back down and a lot of the market-based odds of of some some moves from the different central banks moving down a bit, Um, certainly with the U.S. now. Uh, even though we think you see a hike in December, the the futures are pricing in now a 40-some percent chance. They were up over 50 uh, at the end of June, so you can kind of see that show up. Um, certainly part of our, at least what we were watching is, did the Fed or the central banks in general get too far ahead of the markets and that press on things? Now that seems to have you know changed itself a bit or at least uh, adjusted, I think, has helped allow at least certainly U.S. markets anyway, uh, hold in awful well and be sitting here near all-time highs. So you think the Fed's going to hike in December. Uh, Next week, you know, the professor was alluding to the chance that they announced the balance sheet reduction. Do you think it's next week or do you think it's more like September? We're going with September. I mean, you never know. I think most people will say, well, they might give us some more clues. Um, But will they really give us the plan? Probably we don't think so yet. I think it's like a September plan uh, and October implementation is what we're thinking. Yeah, it's interesting reflecting. I mean, perhaps they were worried earlier that it was causing this huge move in the dollar. Maybe now the dollar's backed off. Maybe they and rates have backed down. Maybe they say, hey, yields have been falling. The dollar's been weakening. Maybe we can give it a shot. Yeah, I mean, I think they're gonna. They're, I think one thing you can say is all of the things being equal, they want to move in that direction. So I think they're going to look for their opportunities with the market. So you're right. I mean, I probably should put a now you talk me into, you know, thinking maybe there's a little (laughs) more of a chance than I think um, of them trying to take advantage of it, um, even maybe just to communicate a little bit more um, when they have the opportunity to do so. They keep trying to test the market a bit and and see how it reacts and respond and, and they pull back. So it'll be it'll definitely be another interesting week in the markets. Yeah. Um, so how do you think about is is politics entering into your equations? Do you think about tax policies? The professor thought that he still thinks corporate tax reforms likely. Is that something you guys are counting on? Yeah, I mean we we think it's highly likely. You know we we do watch it in the sense that our, our view was well, okay, 
I mean, setting aside how you feel about the healthcare, we either said we hope that they get it done um, so that then they can move on to tax or yeah. give up on it and move on to tax. And I think that was kind of what I think I heard, uh, you know, a professor kind of say is, hey, I think we're in agreement. I don't think the odds have necessarily gone down uh, with them getting some sort of, and I agree completely, corporate uh, tax uh, cut or reform, however you want to call it, uh, done. What's been interesting to us is, um, we do some work on a basket of stocks that we think will benefit from this repatriation of, of cash from overseas. And that has really outperformed quite a bit over the last month versus the S&P 500. Um, and certainly over the last couple of weeks, which might sound counterintuitive with what's gone on in the healthcare. The only thing I'd be a little careful on, and we were talking about this earlier, is there's quite a bit of global in there. As you can imagine, with the weaker dollar, it's not probably all policy that's involved here. But yeah. um, you would think if there was a really big worry in the market that you would see it probably do more poorly. So there is probably something there. Yeah, I mean, this year has definitely been a year for multinationals to do. I mean, I have a basket that I look at. It's multinationals versus the just the U.S. economy stocks. And the, the multinationals are up 14, 14 to 15, and the U.S. ones are up 5 to 6. It's sort of large caps versus small caps, you see it, and the S&P outperforming the Russell 2000. So it there's this question on how much is just the dollar, how much is EM in Europe is starting to do well, or the, the perception that the economies are doing well, and so maybe their revenues, the earnings are starting to beat a bit. Exactly. And that's the other thing, you know, I agree. It's hard to say. The only thing I say is at least the policy isn't, or the worries about policy aren't so bad that it's driving it down. But as we were talking about earlier, you're even seeing in the earnings estimates for this quarter, for the second quarter, the internationally exposed companies, probably a lot to do with the, the weaker dollar, they have much better earnings estimates uh, than the domestically focused companies. Now, so how do you think about, we're talking a little bit about U.S. companies that have overseas revenue. How do you think, how do you balance maybe what is PNC's view on a neutral allocation to U.S. international? And then how do you start thinking about, is it the time to be in the U.S.? Is it time to be foreign? I mean, that's that's one of the big questions for a lot of people looking at their portfolios today. Yeah, so we do it a little bit differently than I think some people. So a lot of people talk about a, you know, using the market cap weight of the world and so essentially make it 50-50 roughly U.S. and, and internationally. Um, because most of our clients are so U.S. focused in terms of most of their, you know, the vast, vast 99% of liabilities are in U.S. dollars, we do tilt ourselves more U.S. And we have the luxury of that in the U.S. because we have such a diversified um you know, set of companies that actually still have a lot of international exposure. So we're generally about 80% U.S., 20% international. But right now, we are actually overweight relative in terms of international, just really because we think there's better valuations there. I think, you know, Europe looks good to us uh, relatively, like Japan still, um, and even the emerging markets as well. It all looks relative to cheap um, versus the U.S., so we'll get into a, a conversation in the second half of the program with Jesper Cole on Japan. So we'll, we'll save Japan for, <laughs> for a little bit later. I should also probably just disclose PNC has been a client of Wisdom Tree, so we should, should always disclose that. Um, you know, what's what's interesting, your view on being overweight the U.S., well, because of the versus the ACWI is something, you know, you listen to the, the luminaries and you have Jack Bogle from Vanguard always said, I, you don't need any international. You could just buy the U.S. and you would talk about the liability streams and you would have... Um, Buffett's also said, you know, for my my passing on my my wealth, you'd be ninety percent the S P five hundred and ten percent in sort of cash bonds and and not think about overseas. What what's interesting is you can you know this role of currency risk is not sort of a thing that you need to take, right? You could be neutral to the currencies, you could hedge the currencies um, to not take that currency risk. What's, and you see the S and P getting multinational Euro exposure, right? You're, the down dollars actually helping U S stocks in some ways you could argue, maybe if you're globally hedged, you don't, you, you actually don't have as much currency risk as just the S and P has in some, in some way with that, that, that revenue from the, the broad. Yeah. I guess the only thing I would say is that when I think about the S and P 500 companies, they probably have not that they necessarily hedge the currency outright, but they likely have liabilities in some of those countries, so yeah. I feel like they have a some sort of natural hedge. But I, I you know, I think it's a lot of. Uh, I think you have to give it as you're kind of talking about a lot more thought in terms of. It doesn't necessarily make sense to go automatically go fifty fifty. And there is the, you know, I, I listened. I obviously I'm big fan of Warren Buffett, um, but I do think it makes sense 
to think about some international because that being said he does go look to buy well entire companies internationally so yeah. there's obviously some good companies outside the u.s so it's probably worth looking there right yeah. i mean that's what i think one of the stories i saw is he now has somebody in germany who's feeding him deals because the german companies are you look at their earnings yield you get seven eight percent in some of these companies and so it's a way to he's he's starting to himself pick up those those companies outside outside over there you're right. Why not look, you know, why not make your hunting ground bigger? I mean, that's what I think about. And then on top of it is some of these markets are less efficient, likely, than the U.S. I mean, U.S., we just have a lot more information. Um, you know, we've been in such more depth of financial markets, which also just makes it more efficient, which yeah. you're actually looking for inefficiencies if you're an active manager. Sure. So how do you think about in the U.S. markets where, you know, you say more of your out? allocation is concentrated. How do you think about the U.S. markets, large to small caps, sectors, factors? I mean, what's your, your general take? I mean, the U.S. people say is expensive. So where are you looking to uh, to manage some of those risks? So uh, this one hasn't been quite as good, but we remain kind of overweight value versus growth. It's a primarily a driver on you know the financials. So we still like the financials quite mm-hmm. a bit. Um, again, hasn't been a great one so far this year, um, but still believe with the I'll say steep yield curve relatively that this works out. Um, you know, that's one place that certainly the financials aren't expensive. And yeah. I think we'll see if it works out. But uh, at least in that sense, you're able to get some value, I think, uh, out of the U.S. Um, we're, we don't really have a big take at the moment on overweighting. We're just market weight in terms of the smaller caps. Mm. Um, so we're, we're that's doing OK uh, at the moment. Like you said, larger caps are dominating at the moment, but we don't thankfully, are on the wrong side of that. In terms of factor-wise, we have a built into our allocation a very large portion of exposure to factors, so smart beta, whatever you wish to call it. Uh, It's really one-third of our large-cap portion uh, that we have carved out. Um, that that's where you and I do business in terms of uh, some of the wisdom trees. Um, so I think that's one of the really interesting parts uh, of the allocation that you know you can have a relatively lower cost exposure to things we think outperform over the long run. That's great. So and we appreciate that uh, <laughs> that support there from your from your firm. Um, let me just do a real quick reset. We're talking with Bill Stone, the global chief investment strategist at PNC Asset Management. Um, we're talking about how he carves up his U.S. allocations. So maybe let's deep dive deeper into how you think about allocating to factor investing, active, passive. Um, you know, there's this whole debate of this, the shift from active to passive. And it sounds like you guys are, are thinking about it in a way that you, you're not just doing full passive. You're not doing full active. You've got this new middle ground. But talk about how you think about that spectrum, where you think active is finding its place and, and what you want to see more from active managers who, you know, the there being, you could say, the trend is going towards passive. So what can the active managers do to, to keep parts of your portfolios? Yeah. So what we really did is we said, okay, we like this core of factor exposures because we can build a nice core of factor exposures, smart bait exposures, whatever you wish to call it, that I'll say relatively mimics um, and hopefully, again, at least outperforms over the long run, but stays pretty close in terms of a risk side of the equation to the S&P 500. But then the opportunity is then to add in, going to the active side, very active managers that take, you know, much more active positioning instead of, you know, no closet indexers, those kind of things. Because what we want to do and what we're willing to pay for is active management that is truly active uh, and can add value, again, over the long run, because you know they're going to have good and bad quarters. That's not the point. Um, But what you want them to do is be able to, if they really do have underlying skill, to express it, and then you're willing to pay for that. Um, so I think the combo of, of, and I think active managers in general have moved in that direction, uh, and also the pricing of active managers is frankly moving lower. So it's making it uh, attractive if they can add that value over the long run and you know have it priced lower. It's good, and then the factors again, the smart beta comes in at a at a very very attractive level generally versus just straight indexing. So let's talk about in without talking about a specific active fund because we can't talk about specific right. strategies here. But give me a profile of what that active fund looks like. Is it how concentrated is this active share? Is there things like tracking error that you think about in terms of evaluating them? Um, and I'm wondering, you know, what what are the, pro, the the what makes that active manager attractive to you? Yeah. So I think the 
the first thing is an investment process that we think is logical and makes sense over the long run. So I think that kind of stops everything if that's not the case, right? Um, and I think the the next part is, yeah, I mean, that you actually see it expressed in the portfolio um, and that it actually shows up there, which can mean that you have a pretty significant tracking error at times yeah. relative to its underlying, you know, whatever benchmark um, that they're, they're, um, they're held to. For us, what we do is we try and then, as part of our portfolio construction and putting the managers together, kind of control some of that tracking error. So we think about, well, how much tracking error can our clients kind of stomach, so to speak? That's part of where the factor exposures come in yeah. um, because that helps us because of the way we built our factor exposures. That keeps us as a core pretty close to the S&P 500 in terms of tracking error. Um, and then we can allow those other managers to have a lot more tracking error. So the mix together helps that a little bit. So you feel like it's a third, a third, a third roughly yep. today? So it's an equal equal weight across active, passive, and factors. That's an interesting way of doing it. That's, you know, I haven't seen a, a, a lot going in that exact uh, fashion, but I, I, I'm fully, I think, expect that's where it's going. I think so I, I applaud you for being a leader. And Thanks. I mean, I don't that. know why you wouldn't think about using all, because I think the tools are all good. It's how you use them that matters. Yeah. No, it's it's people are struggling with this active passive divide and and having dedicated allocations like that, I think, is is really part of the future. I see as as we talked to Jesper on the second part of the show, Japan is actually their pension fund is one of the leaders in thinking of it exactly the same way as you are. They about a trillion dollars and for their active mandates or their equity mandates, they've done exactly what you're thinking about, where they have their pure beta, low cost beta, they have their active, and then they have this they're calling it smart active or or active beta or something like that, that they put in this middle ground like like you guys are. We're even doing some of the same things on the alternative side. Hmm. So, I mean, you can't really do passive on the alternative side, but in terms of doing some liquid and, and alternatives and places where you can get it cheaper, so to yeah. speak, and then say, okay, well, we really only want to pay the limited partnership kind of alts for things that are really special. So what are, yeah, let's talk a little bit about that then. Alternatives, where, what are the types of alternative strategies you do look for? So we, we, in terms of liquid side, you know, you're generally talking what are, I guess I'll say, more common kind of alternatives. So um, it's going to be your long shorts. Um, there are some other hedge fund replications, obviously some, uh, some of the commodities, that's managed futures, let's yeah. call it, um, and then just some straight exposure to, to um to commodities and then also real estate. We really access that via REITs. We did some work that they at least give you some of those same exposures as private real estate. Uh, again, can't do everything in liquid form because there's various reasons, uh, liquidity and things that you don't get. But in terms of trying to separate it out and things you can get cheaper, quote unquote, um, versus things you have to pay more for, I think it's very similar to the traditional side. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm with you. We're trying to make a, a lot of efforts in that low cost alternative uh I think a lot of the things that people are doing in the active format there, you can get cheaper with with rules based strategies. Uh, managed futures has been a tough category. Oh it? yeah, it's been not a trending environment. Is that one that you guys have any any apprehension about, or are you looking at managed futures? Um, do you think the trends will start to come back? I'm a believer that they do because I mean the one thing you can say is managed futures are trend following, whatever yeah. you want to call it, has a actually one of the longest histories of working over the long run. So I guess I'm not going to discount it that it will work again. But you're right, it's been <laughs> a it's pain. Painful. Yeah, it's okay. been painful. I mean, the good thing is the way we have built our, our liquid alternatives has been uh, it's really a risk-targeted approach, which has led us to not have large allocations uh, to manage futures. So that's saved us uh, quite a bit because you've seen – you know, some of that just, uh, well, it worked out that some of the risk levels have moved up and it's moved it out for us. In the same spirit, commodities has also been been painful. It's related because a lot of the managers are trading to commodities uh, and they haven't had enough trends. But do you have any, are, are you starting to think more positively towards commodities or what do you think? You know, it's hard. We, we generally say, well, we do most of our exposure in the managed future side for commodities just because I guess our thought is it's not clear now with the ultra low interest rates that you actually get kind of a carry in in yeah. the commodities. And, and so I'm not sure we would anymore. In fact, I'm pretty sure we would not anymore assume automatically that you have a positive return out of commodities. Mm. Um, so that leads us to if we if you have that 
it's not necessarily an investment anymore, right? You have to think of it as a trading vehicle, which leads us mostly to manage futures. Um, some of our commodities, like a gold or something, that's more of a, a risk hedge in terms yeah. of some of our liquid alts, um, and that's to control some risk and you know, kind of a uh, to to work, work with the tail side. Well, that's very good. That's good background and very useful discussion. Um, we're going to have to take a quick break here. We're talking with Bill Stone, Global Chief Investment Strategist strategist of PNC Asset Management. When we come back, when we talk with Jesper Cole, the head of Wisdom Trees Japan office, you're listening to Behind the Markets and Sirius XM 111. We'll be back after a short break. Welcome back. This is Behind the Markets. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Here in our Philadelphia studio, I have Bill Stone, Executive Vice President, Global Chief Investment Strategist for PNC Asset Management. Joining us via phone is Jesper Cole, the CEO of Wisdom Tree Japan, but who's in New York this week, traveling uh, in the U.S. here. Jesper, welcome back to our program. Hey, Jeremy. Thank you for having me. It's uh, always great to get you when you're here traveling in the U.S. just to get your, your latest thoughts on Japan. Um, Bill is actually taking a trip to Japan later in November this year. So I, I want Bill to participate in this conversation knowing that he's, he's coming to Japan and also looks at Japan as part of his global asset allocation strategies. Um, you know, the Bank of Japan had their, their news this week. Um, Abe is in political turmoil, Jesper. People are, I was just listening to a call last night on his popularity declining. Uh, maybe you could start off high level, just your thoughts on Japan, both from that monetary and maybe we'll get into the politics discussion as well. Okay, I mean, on the monetary policy side, uh, Japan is very solid and consistent. Uh, I think that, uh, you know, no changes coming forward and the Bank of Japan really sticking with its zero interest rate cap all the way down to the 10-year part of the Japanese yield curve. And uh, for all intents and purposes, you know, the Bank of Japan is very likely to continue to stay uh, steadfast in its policy uh, because, yes, there is, uh, you know, some good economic indicators in terms of the real economy uh, recovering, corporate profits rising, the employment market tightening very nicely. But at the same time, uh, inflation uh, basically is back down to right around zero, which is a far cry from the 2% inflation target that the Bank of Japan has said. So for all intents and purposes, uh, no matter what the Federal Reserve, no matter what the ECB or the Bank of China is going to be doing, the Bank of Japan is likely to stay where we are today at the zero interest rate cap. Yeah, so it's it's that difference between the U.S. and the Japan is it couldn't be more clear where they said they're going to buy every single bond at like 10 basis points as yield started rising. Japan's yield did nothing. That's exactly right. And, you know, the interesting thing is um, that when you look at the data, you actually find that, uh, you know, the policy is actually working. And I say that uh, because I look at the bank credit cycle uh, very, very carefully. And what you're actually seeing is that bank credit growth is now accelerating. You found that private bank lending last year was running at around two, two and a quarter. This year, it's running at around three and a half, three and a quarter. So you actually do have, you know, the policy from the Bank of Japan now engendering a private credit cycle. The banks are very strong, well capitalized, ready to lend, and you're getting a response from the private sector with demand for credit from particularly the small and medium-sized companies now actually beginning to kick in. And that's a very, very healthy sign for Japan's economy entering a self-sustaining domestic demand upcycle. Now, what about Abe? So he lost this, uh, his, the LDP lost the Tokyo election. I, I, you know, people are saying his, his popularity is declining. How much does that worry you? What do you think? His, you know, there's, I guess the next potential election is, is not till next year, but do you, what's the, his, his response do you think going to be to his declining popularity? Look, um, you know, let's just, first of all, be very clear. Um, you know, Prime Minister Abe controls a two-thirds majority in both houses of national parliament. Um, so the grip on power, the control on power where it matters at the national policy level, you know, is very, very strong. 
Now, having said that, yes, um, you know, the LDP, the ruling Democratic Party, did lose, um, you know, very significantly in the Tokyo metropolitan election. And, uh, you know, it's also true that the popularity has been falling. It used to be steady, um, you know, at around 50, 55 percent support. Now it's down to around 35 percent. And, you know, the reason for that is very simple. There's nothing to do with the economy, but has something to do with uh, the vanity project that Prime Minister Abe is running, which is he wants to change the Japanese pacifist constitution. And, you know, that's not necessarily popular, particularly in the uh, large metropolitan areas. And, uh, you know, so it's really politics rather than economics that, uh, you know, forced the downturn in Abe's popularity, but it doesn't uh, weaken his grip on actual power. And so it's not something you think as, as investors looking to Japan that they, the, the politics side, because everything is dominated by politics. In the U.S., we have Trump dominating politics. In Europe, there's all sorts of, you know, the, the elections there, although those have gone better than people expected from, from a nationalist perspective. I mean, what, you know, it's not something that comes into your equation. Look, I mean, it's, it's, it's certainly clear from an investor perspective, you know, you do want to have a strong leader who is popular that gives you two for two. And, uh, you know, Abe is a strong leader in terms of the arithmetic of parliamentary de- democracy. And yes, he is going to have to use this decline in popularity as a wake-up call. And, uh, you know, I'm very confident that, uh, you know, that uh, the team around Prime Minister Abe is seeing the decline in popularity as a wake-up call. And specifically, um, it's very likely that over the next uh, four to six weeks, they will reshuffle uh, the cabinet, so bring in some new blood, some new policy leadership. But it's going to go beyond just changing the people. Um, It's also going to be a new way of uh, economic policy initiatives. And in particular, I think that uh, Team Abe uh, is going to present a new agenda of deregulation and privatization. Very good. Bill, how do you, when you guys look at Japan as part of your global allocations, how do you think about it from, from the macro level, from the valuation perspective, and anything you, know, you might ask Jesper uh, is to, to help clarify any, any views from having a real local expert here with us? Yeah, that's, um, so I mean, for us, it, it just stood out because it looks cheap. Um, you know, certainly relative to U.S. stocks, but I think, you know, relative to even its own history, um, if they, in fact, can continue to get some earnings leverage, it looks like you have a win. I think the second part that I think is will be interesting to hear from Jesper, what he thinks about it is, I mean, to us, it seems like people, now that the, it's been so long that Japan's been mired in, in where they are in terms of their domestic economy, so many of the companies seem to us to be externally focused. So it seems to us people are perhaps a little bit too concerned about the Japanese domestic economy and not really thinking enough about the other exposures that Japanese stocks have. I mean, Bill, you make the key point. And, uh, you know, I mean, as as you may know, I've been stuck in Japan for the last uh, 32 years. And I spent basically 30 years of my life trying to convince investors that, uh, you know, Japan deserves a premium, that uh, a price earnings multiple of 30, 35 times, you know, is something that Japan deserves. Now, the interesting thing is I don't need to do that anymore. Um, You know, if you look at all the standard valuation measures, whether it's price to sales, price to book, or the price earnings level, uh, Japan today trades basically on a PE of around 15 times, which is at a discount to the United States of America and at a huge discount to its own economic history. So from that perspective, the valuation side, uh, you know, is very, very important here. And then the other point, where do the earnings actually come from? You have in Japan a highly competitive, you know, uh, corporate sector. And that that competition is in the tradable goods sector. It is increasingly also in the service sector. So, for example, uh, over the last two years, the Japanese mega banks, so Mitsubishi Bank, Mizuho, Sumitomo, they've become the largest lender into the Asia-Pacific region outside of China. So it's very, very important to actually recognize that when you buy a Japanese 
Japanese index, when you buy the Japanese market, the financials are now a hugely geared play on the fastest growing region, region we've got in the world economy, which is the ASEAN countries. So from that perspective, the value proposition plus the fact that you are geared into the high growth part of Asia, that I think is where Japan actually makes a lot of sense. I think one other thought, or I'd love to get your thoughts on it, is the one other thing that, you know, not just, you know, you can't, to us, is like just valuation itself maybe doesn't get you there. Um, But the other part that we were certainly intrigued on, and I really am interested in what you think, is we seem to see that Japanese corporate governance continues to become more shareholder friendly. So they had all this cash on their balance sheets. They still have a lot, um, but they're being more willing to pay it back out. Uh, to shareholders, which to us, of course, as shareholders, um, makes us happy. So I, I'd be interested in your thoughts on that. No, absolutely. Capital stewardship, you know, is now not just talked about in Japan, but it's actually happening. You find that, you know, the buyback stream is steadily increasing. Um, you know, the market now is a buyback yield of around 2 2.5%. And on top of that, when you look at dividends, you actually find that Japan now has the highest dividend growth. Uh, of any of the major markets in the world. So, you know, three or four years ago, when you asked the typical Japanese companies, you know, what's your ROE, what's your RA, they didn't really have an answer because they weren't really concerned with that as a variable for which to manage the company. Now, all Japanese companies know what their ROE is, have a target for the ROE, do have a target for the, um, for the shareholder yield. So the conversation in Japan now has become much, much more objective. Capital stewardship is now a huge tailwind that you actually have. Yeah, it's, uh, we're, let me just reintroduce our guest here. We have Japan, uh, Japan's CEO of our Jesper Cole of our CEO of our Japan office. We got Bill Stone, Global Chief Investment Strategist at PNC Asset Management. Um, Jesper, interestingly, on this point on Japan increasing dividends, buybacks. Um, you know, we looked across the international markets. Um, just recently, did a piece actually on Monday. Uh, I looked at the last three years, the last five years. Japan has had the best dividend growth across a lot of the regional. Whether you're looking at the the European indexes, the EFA indexes, the Acquix US emerging markets, Japan's even beating the U.S. over the last three years from a dividend growth perspective, which a lot of people don't think about that. Um, you know, they are starting to focus on this ROE more. What do you, where do you think, you know, in, in terms of the allocations, uh, one of the big motivators was you had the GPIF who's starting to reduce their bonds, start increasing equities. What do you think, is, is there more besides the GPIF behind that, is the other private pensions going to think about not taking a negative yield on their bonds and saying, I can get 2% yields with 7 8% dividend growth? Or are they going to start making that, that switch? This is the key issue, you know, portfolio rebalancing. And uh, in Japan, a couple of years ago, exactly two years ago, you had the world's largest pension fund, the Japanese Public Pension Fund, reallocating their assets out of bonds into domestic equities. They now have about 24% of their assets in domestic equities, while two years ago that was barely 12%. Um, No, now what are we going to see, you know, private pensions and Mr. and Mrs. Watanabe, so the Japanese retail investor, also beginning to realize that zero interest rates are here to stay. So the opportunity cost in terms of, you know, what's a risk-free investment, well, that yield is going to be capped at zero by the central bank, while at the same time, the dividend yield continues to grow. And the share buyback yield continues to grow. So the reallocation of funds, you know, the portfolio rebalancing of both the institutional asset managers in Japan and the individual, that's, I think, the big story going forward. And the government is actually putting now policies into place to further accelerate that change. They're putting together this fiduciary code, uh, which is similar to the U.S. fiduciary uh, uh, rule, but it's a code, like everything in Japan, you know, it's not legalistic, um, but basically, you know, uh, uh, ensuring that all the distribution platforms in Japan uh, are going to have greater fiduciary care uh, over their customers' assets. 
And there, there's I, some statistic or somebody said, um, maybe it's an anecdote, that 99% of the funds out there are not really up to that fiduciary code. Well, Jeremy, that was not somebody. That was the head commissioner of the FSA, of the Financial Supervisory Agency. That's the head regulator who six, Mr. Mori, Commissioner Mori, um, you know, seven weeks ago gave this big public speech and said 99% of all the financial products sold in Japan are inappropriate and are only there to enrich uh, the manager or the broker. Yeah. I mean, that is very yeah. strong language. Big so statement. Every Japanese asset manager and broker is now not just soul searching, but is actually looking to reinvent their business in order to take care of their customer to provide a better customer uh, uh, experience. Yeah, hopefully. Well, that they, they do have ETFs in Japan. Bank of Japan is buying it. I'm sure that is not part of the 99%. It's much more the right structure. Bill, we had Jesper talk about the, the asset allocation shift and just the flows that should be coming from the pension the retail out of just negative yielding securities towards a positive yielding security. But how do you how would you say, you know, we didn't uh, on PNC's client base, how, how would you say your clients are allocated today? Do you think they as a firm, you know, we look across the, the big complex that you guys oversee are people overinvested today, underinvested? What's the general sentiment you think of, of clients? I would say in general, they remain underinvested. You know, that cash that built up during the financial crisis, it's been hard to get people to really reinvest it hmm. um, completely, I, I'd say completely relative to where their you know, target asset allocation is because, you know, one, you know, the market's moved way ahead as you know, they always do of what went on in the real economy. And then ever since, you know, everyone's always waiting for the next big sell-off that occasionally we get some, but it's been a while since we had something really significant. And I think now all of a sudden, you know, the next talk is, wow, this expansion's gone on so long, something's going to go wrong. I'd say the same thing around, you know, now that we're talking about having more international exposure, including Japan, uh, than, say, historically we've had, um, that's a hard sell, too, because international is generally done worse you know since the uh, uh since really the financial crisis but you know like we said we'd rather go to where we think things are going than where things have been it's a funny situation because they don't want to buy the u.s because they were waiting for a pullback international has pulled back but they don't <laughs> they don't want the international either. and japan's a tough one in particular <laughs> oh, because yeah. i think like we talked about many people just think about the domestic economy although yeah you got to argue it's doing better there it's just you know not uh, I'll say not robust is probably a good word to put it, um, but that's not, in our view, and you know we were talking about the main driver yeah. of it. I've, before I met Jesper, I often said, you know, I don't care what happens in Japan. You know, actually, it's, <laughs> Japan's a play on on global growth. It's a play on the U.S. It's a play on China. But Jesper, why don't you make the case to to Bill and our listeners about why you're actually more optimistic on Japan's local economy than most people? Well, I would actually say when you look at the market, uh, it's actually telling you that the domestic economy in Japan is recovering very nicely. Just look at the small caps. I mean, the yeah. Japanese small caps, you know, have been steady performers, right? Uh, excellent visibility of earnings there. And, you know, like anywhere, uh, the small and mid-cap space, um, you know, there you've got effectively 80, 90 percent of the earnings are generated from the local market, while the large caps, obviously, are much more geared uh, into the global economy. And if you and I are having a discussion about Toyota, for example, you know, you don't need to talk to me. Uh, because, you know, Toyota's earnings effectively around 80, 85 percent are completely determined by what goes on in the in the rest of the world here. So I think the interesting thing is the fact that the consumer is recovering, the fact that uh, Japan has had a two and a half a year bull market in housing, if you look at uh, residential property, um, the fact that for the first time in 30 years, residential property prices are actually increasing, uh, the fact that the consumer finance business uh, in the domestic economy in Japan is now recovering in double-digit rates, uh, I can go on. Uh, you know, So there is this local recovery story that is going on, and the small and mid-cap space, that's the best way to capture it. Here's a here's an interesting fact for you. So, to Jesper's point, the last five years, as you've seen Japan resurge, I mean, you've seen small caps 
by the way we, we track them, have outperformed large caps by 500 basis points a year. So it's 15% a year versus 10%. So that gives you cumulative gains of 103% versus 64%. So Japanese small caps doing so well over this literally last five years, it's actually beating the Russell 2000 by four, which is <laughs> up 14.7 for the last five years. And, you know, thinking like an international value index by 500 basis points. So it's an interesting, it's an interesting point there, Jesper, that they are actually outperforming. Now, what's the economic case behind why the local economy is not so bad? Uh, the economic case is straightforward. It is the fact that Japan is in a demographic sweet spot. And a lot of people raise eyebrows when I say that because the big pushback... Bill just did that too right here. Is, <laughs> I did. So, but, but look, you know, people, people look at me and say, oh my God, how can you be bullish on a country where in 310 years only 17 people are going to be left, right? Which is the demographic reality of Japan. But that's irrelevant um, because, you know, you and I don't... You know, you, what, what matters is incomes and purchasing power. And what you're seeing now is that for the first time in 20 years... You're seeing the quality of jobs that is being created is improving. Uh, Japan is now hiring full-time employees rather than part-time employees. And on top of that, you actually find that, uh, you know, wages and incomes are also improving very nicely. Let me give you one example. Uh, starting salaries for university graduates are increasing at a rate of almost 6% this year. Um, average wage growth is now running at around 1.5%. Uh, which doesn't sound like much, but when you come from a decade of minus one, uh, positive one and a half is actually very, very positive and attractive. And it's particularly at the young, at the people in their 20s and 30s, where this demographic sweet spot is now kicking in, is generating greater job security, better incomes, and access to leverage. That's the basis for the endogenous self-sustaining domestic demand recovery that we're getting in Japan. Very interesting. You don't, you don't hear that every day on, on a bullish Japan's economy story, Bill. No, you don't. In fact, <laughs> not very often at all. No, that's what, one of the reasons why I love Jesper. Well, it's, 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 it's interesting. Again, I mean, you know, everybody has a narrative, you know, and uh, on the other hand, I mean, let's just focus and look at the facts. And again, I come back to this point, you know, if you, if, you, if you ask me, show me one chart, I've got 30 seconds, what's the one chart I need to look at uh, to be convinced that something is changing in Japan? You know, it's the chart about full-time employment. It has been going down for 22 years. Now, for the last 18 months, full-time employment is rising. And that's not a cyclical thing because exports are booming. It's a structural thing because of the tightness in the labor market. 98% of the university graduates got a full-time job offer within 10 days of looking for a job. Now, that's the kind of country you want to have kids in. Yeah. And the valuation, so going back to your point on the small caps, I was just pulling up PEs 15 times compared to the Russell 2000, not so high. The dividend yields at 2%, Russell 2000s like 1.3. And again, we see Japan companies growing dividends when, you know, U.S. small caps, well, they're, they're half of them are non-dividend payers. So it's a, it's a different, different dynamic. Jesper, last 30 seconds, any closing thoughts? Um, I think, you know, the other thing, uh, you know, one needs to look at, you know, is just the exchange rate. I mean, the dark side in Japan is the fact that debt monetization continues to accelerate. So from a Tokyo perspective, the Japanese yen is likely to be a very weak currency. Yeah, and uh, we know it's not, uh, given that they cap their yields at, at zero, it's all about the U.S. I know Jesper always comes back to me and puts it on me and says, when is yelling, when is the rates in the U.S. going to rise? It's not it's not my fault, my part. The Bank of Japan is doing everything they can. <laughs> Jesper, thanks for spending some time with us here. Thank you for having me. Bill Stone, uh, Chief Global Chief Investment Strategy at PNC Asset Management here in the studio. Thanks for coming back to the studio, Bill. Oh, thanks a lot for having me back. Always a pleasure. You've been listening to Behind the Markets and SiriusXM 111. You can listen to us on our Behind the Markets podcast. Thanks to our producer, Patty Hall, our sound engineer, Daniel Bruno. Have a great week, everybody. Don't forget to check out Behind the Markets Live every Friday, 1 to 2 p.m. Eastern on Sirius XM's Business Radio, Channel 111. Join us next week for another edition of the Behind the Markets podcast.